And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we uh, continue our journey, uh, fortifying ourselves, getting armed so that we can go out there and do battle, defend the faith, clarity, charity, and confidence. Got a fantastic show in store for us. We have our good friend, Matt Swain, with us. We're going to be talking about a uh, very, very important early church father for apologists, the great Athanasius. There's just so much to talk about when he comes down to Athanasius. Uh, even just covering his life it could be an entire program. Just, just the events in his life and how many times he was exiled from his own see. And top of that, you can uh, talk about his influence in terms of um, establishing uh, the Nicene Creed as uh you know the touchstone for christian orthodoxy and uh man you could just go on and on and on and uh, we're gonna just touch on uh this great saint with uh matt so that's gonna be a ton of fun that's coming up by the way on the other side of the break on this side of the break we're gonna do what we always do we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills by looking at an informal fallacy Today's informal fallacy is the special pleading fallacy. And we're going to also meet an early church father. Today's early church father is um, a very early church father indeed. Uh, in fact, uh, we're not really sure who wrote it. It is the so-called second letter of Clement of Rome. So, got lots of great stuff in store for us. So, I want to begin, like I do every program, by welcoming you all to the show. Welcome to the dojo, everybody. Uh, beginning with our live stream audience and also all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard. It's great to be with you. Kicking off a brand new week here. Hope everybody had a fantastic weekend. And... Uh, by the way, let me uh, give this quick shout-out for uh, any of you dojoites out there who live in southeast Michigan. Tomorrow at 7 o'clock, I'm going to be giving the second installment on my series of talks based on my brand-new book, Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Foes of Sanity and Truth from the Serpent to the State. That's going to be at St. Michael's, the Archangel Catholic Church in Livonia, Michigan, 7 o'clock. Had a great turnout last week, and God willing, we're going to keep that turnout strong. And uh, and we're going to dive into Gnosticism. We're going to dive into some of the revelations, of, or revolutions, I should say, of thought that the Incarnation uh, sprung out and uh, basically created Western civilization. So that's going to be a ton of fun. Again, it's going to be at St. Michael's Derek Angel Catholic Church in Livonia, Michigan, tomorrow, 7 o'clock p.m. in the cafeteria. And I uh, hope if you live in the area, I'd love to see you. So stop by, and uh, I guarantee you it's going to be a, uh, a lot of uh, good information. There's also going to be refreshments, and if you want to pick up a copy of the book, I'll be there, and uh, I will sign it. In fact, for an extra $5, I will sign anybody's name to my book. 
Just joking. Just joking. Anyway, uh, let's go to the finding of the fallacy for today. It is the special pleading fallacy. Special pleading is an informal fallacy wherein one cites something as an exception to a general or universal principle without justifying the special exception. It is an application of a double standard. So basically, special pleading is where you will appeal to something that is outside of the norm without actually giving any justification why that uh, the people who are outside the norm should be taken seriously or should be uh, given special focus. Um, does this occur in apologetics? Yes, it does. It happens quite a bit on a number of different angles. In fact, boy, this is going to be hard. I'll have to think about, there's so many examples, it's hard to just pick one. Of course, with the Deuterocanon, uh, you get special pleading of the early church fathers left and right. I think you, you basically get that largely with the early church fathers everywhere. Um, where people will look at uh, one or two early church fathers who may go against the norm and focus on that as if they are the norm. And they won't give any special, uh, they won't justify why they're given special attention uh, to these outlying uh, information as opposed to um, the general rule or principle. What do you do to defeat the special pleading? Uh, just call their cards, tell them to put it on the table and give some sort of explanation why they're singling out these fathers or the, this particular outlying evidence as opposed to the norm. And if they can't do that, then they are guilty of today's finding the fallacy, which is special pleading fallacy. <clears throat> okay, so let's go to our Meet the Early Church Father segment. Today's Early Church Father is, you know, it's kind of funny. It's not exactly an individual. We don't know who the individual is. Uh, it's attributed to Clement of Rome, but uh, most scholars think of this as a pseudo-Clementine uh, writing. And it's also characterized as a letter, and as we're soon to see, it is not a letter. So let's go to Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers and find out a little bit more about this uh, mysterious, very, very early um, apostolic writing. The so-called second letter of Clement to the Corinthians is not an authentic work of Clement, but it is, in fact, an anonymous homily. Uh, opinions differ as to the origin of the work, but the more likely theory would seem to be that it makes a homily originating in the church at Corinth, um, preserved in the archives of Corinth, along with Clement's authentic letter. And it could easily have happened that it was copied out along with Clement's letter to the Corinthians and was given the title Second Letter. Uh, similarity in penitential doctrine that it expounds is uh, can be noted with the other apostolic father, Hermas, the author of The Shepherd, which leads scholars to date Second Clement sometime around the same time, which would be A.D. 150. The work, then, is the oldest extent extra-biblical Christian homily. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's not by Clement, and it's not a letter, even though it's known as the second letter of Clement to the Corinthians. Uh, and I, I tend to agree with Jurgens that it most likely was added to, um, to the uh, Bible in Corinth 
after first Clement and it just became known as second Clement. Um, that's an interesting thing because, um, as you know, Clement of Rome's letter to the Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians had booted out the authentic uh, bishops and replaced them with people they liked. And so uh, an appeal was made to Rome, and uh, Clement, the current pope, sends a letter back to Corinth ordering him to set things in order and replace the bishops with the original bishops. And his letter was so uh, prized and revered in Corinth that uh, we know from uh, later on that his letter was read along with the scriptures in the liturgy. And so eventually what happened, I believe, is that the first letter of Clement was, for convenience sake, just added to the end of the New Testament. And eventually in Corinth and a couple other locations, uh, the Clement's letter to the Corinthians actually was counted among the books of the New Testament, even though it's not an inspired work. And if that is true, then that makes perfect sense that this homily, which probably was very popular in Corinth, was also likewise added for convenience sake to the uh, the end of the New Testament right after First Clement, and hence the name Second Clement. And it's just assumed that it was a letter just like the former. So uh, let's see. Yeah, we have a couple of minutes. I could probably squeeze in a few quick quotes from Second Clement. Here's a quick one. It says at the very beginning, brethren, we must think of Jesus Christ as God and the judge of the living and the dead. Wow. So here we have an extremely early document, flat out and explicitly calling Jesus God. So this definitely puts a pin in Dan Brown's work, you know, the Da Vinci Code, where apparently no one believed Jesus was God till the Council of Nicaea. And I think he says it like passed by one vote that they made Jesus God. Well, you know what? Apparently he didn't read Second Clement because Second Clement just flat out says Jesus Christ is God. Um, elsewhere, he says, you know, brother, that our stay in this world in the flesh is short and fleeting. But the promise of Christ is great and wonderful and brings us rest in the kingdom which is to come and in life everlasting. And he continues, if then we do the will of Christ, we shall obtain rest. But if not, if we neglect his commandments, nothing will rescue us from eternal punishment. And again, so you could get all sorts of doctrinal nuggets from here. For example, the necessity of obedience to do the will of Christ, that this will determine our ultimate end, uh, whether we go to heaven or whether we go to eternal punishment. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is a growing number of non-Catholic Christians who are denying the existence of an eternal punishment in hell. So the early church fathers are so important because whatever you may make of the New Testament evidence, and frankly, I think the New Testament evidence bears out eternal punishment. But if you go to the early church fathers, um, it's very clear. They understand that there is eternal punishment. And that is our early church father for today, Second Clement. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Matt Swain, talk about the great St. Athanasius right after this. Stay tuned, everybody.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We're going to talk about the great St. Athanasius, a very, very influential early church father and an awesome saint just to know about, just for personal devotion, much less... uh, or much more, I guess, uh, you know, he's a great saint to know for apologetics. He's written so much on the faith, so much uh, doctrine, and uh, just a great light to know about. And to help us better know St. Athanasius, we have our good friend Matt Swain with us. Matt, of course, grew up in a strong Christian family, attended United Methodist, Nazarene, and Free Methodist congregations, eventually became Catholic, and has worked in Catholic radio for uh, well over a decade before joining the Coming Home Network in 2016, where his primary role is uh, working to coordinate and promote new video and other media. And he also has a great show on there with another favorite, uh, Ken Hensley. It's called On the Journey with Matt and Ken. You can check that out at chnetwork.org. And here he is, the one, the only, the great Matt Swain. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great, but as our discussion will reveal, um, the words the one, the only, are much more, I guess, adequately applied to the son proceeding from the father than they are to a guy <laughs> like me. So No, Matt, now come on. You are unique and you're sp- I mean we are all unique and unrepeatable. We've all read theology of the body. I get that. But But you're also great too. And you well, can't deny your greatness. Well, I mean, it depends on, you know, whose whose mouth it comes out of. I won't speak to it on my own, but you know what? It would be an act of pride for me to not receive those words from you. And that is why you are great, because you have great humility. (laughs) You better stop it before I have to go to confession, man. (laughs) Well, hey, how you doing, Matt? It's great. I'm doing great, great, Gary. Yeah. So Athanasius, big, big early church father. Huge early church father. And one of those guys, not only is is he a a big figure, he's a mouthful uh, to try and say his name. Um, I'm actually a little bummed out. I meet kids named Bonaventure and I meet kids named, you know, all kinds of like wild ostentatiously Catholic names. I don't think I've ever met a, a baby named Athanasius. I think that like Catholic families who are looking to, you know, really give their kids saint names that got some serious oomph to them need to revisit the possibility of naming their kids Athanasius. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's because it's hard to come up with a, a baby version Athy? I, I don't guess know it's what... Athy? It doesn't work. Natius? No. no. Uh, it doesn't work. But I know plenty of Philomenas. You know, I like it. Oh, you I, we, we should work or, on Yeah. Of course. Yeah, there's not really a good diminutive of Athanasius. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of hard to diminutize Athanasius when you look at his his deal. I guess I guess yep. we should start with some of the biographical stuff uh, first that we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of him. Um, so he's born at the beginning of... I'm sorry, he was born really at the end of the third century, so about 295. Uh, so that's when Christianity is still completely illegal in the Roman Empire. He's in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So he's in the he's in Roman Africa. Um, he grows up 
uh, becomes after studying theology and philosophy and classics uh, ends up uh, ordained to the priesthood working for his bishop in Alexandria. And that's how he gets a ticket to the council of Nicaea uh, in three twenty five. as a 30 year old man. He gets to witness the whole thing down Nicholas slapping Arius and the rest of it. Um, Athanasius <laughs> is there right. and he then spends the next 45 or so years of his life trying to take what happened at the Council of Nicaea and go make it work at the local level, which I know that some com- people complain about Vatican II because that's the most recent council that we've got to work with here. But let me tell you, like, there is no chaos in implementing a council that can rival the chaos of what it took to implement the Council of Nicaea. I mean, it was a wild, <laughs> wild time. Um of course, the, the main thing of the Council of Nicaea that Athanasius was tasked with implementing is, you know, really um, getting people to, to pray this creed that said that Jesus was uh, not in like, was not of like being to the Father, but was one in being with the Father. And the word, of course, in Greek, it comes out instead of homoousia, well, the false interpretation that the Arian heresy was trying to promote was homoousios with a little I in the middle of it. Athanasius said, remove the I, it's homo usios. He is of the same substance as the father. Um, And of course, the Latin word for that is consubstantial. And it's a word that we say today, right? In the Nicene Creed. As of 2011 in Advent, we now say consubstantial with the father. And that's because, again, this was a battle. Uh, Was Jesus... um, someone who is very like to the father who shows us the father, or is he of the same essence of the father? Um, Is he truly a member of the Trinity? God from God, light from light. All that stuff is what they were fighting about at the council of Nicaea and Athanasius is tasked with implementing it. And we can get into some of that here in a minute, Uh, but he goes back and uh, while orthodoxy has won the day at the council, there's still all kinds of people around, who on the theological level have a problem with Nicaea. But uh, as a result of all this, there are also some political things because there are a bunch of temporal leaders who it's in their best interest to keep certain factions going. And maybe they disagree with Orthodox political leaders and things get hairy. And suffice to say that Athanasius is exiled from his home diocese of Alexandria, not one time, not two times, not three, not four times, but five times yeah. he is exiled from his spot as Bishop of Alexandria, which is a wild thing to think about. Imagine like your bishop being kicked out of town completely. Like you, one wonders like after the third time, does he think, well, maybe I just shouldn't go back. But he does. He does. Um, and there's some really fascinating stories about uh, his perseverance through that. And actually, there's one particular, my favorite story about this is one where uh, Athanasius uh, is not technically lying, but he uh, escapes because of some some cleverness of words. So it's the middle of the night. He's on a boat in the Nile, and the authorities are coming by in the fog, and they see the boat that Athanasius is on, and they see some candles burning on it, and they holler out, and they say, Excuse me, have you all any of you all seen Bishop Athanasius? And Athanasius cries out, I think you're getting very close to him, (laughs) which is true. But uh, it was also interpreted as those guys chasing Athanasius that, oh, he must be somewhere 
not far along down the river. And so they leave him alone. Um, there's an interesting story, by the way, of uh, Father Chaminade, a French priest from the French Revolution, that is very similar to that, by the way. So Father Chaminade is fleeing from the French revolutionaries in the you know, late 1700s, and they're trying to kill and behead all these priests and bishops and nuns and everything. And he's in street clothes, and he comes around the corner, and the mob comes and saying, hey, have you seen Father Chaminade? And he says, he just walked right around that corner. <laughs> uh, so um yeah but athanasius lives he's not a martyr and it's kind of surprising that he isn't because he very well could have been um he instead is a man exiled five times who comes back to his flock each time to try and uh try and teach the faith and he is a doctor of the church and uh that's a pretty elite list of people um and uh he's a guy that we look to today as a, as a model of um, not just orthodox theology and teaching the truth, but also of of teaching it when the stakes are pretty doggone high, because they were for him. Oh, yeah. 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 One of these days, I'd like to sit down and calculate how many how many years did he actually spend in his sea and how many he spent outside of his sea? I imagine I, I it was probably think, more out than in. I think that the numbers are uh, something like he spent a third of his time as bishop kicked out of his diocese yeah, it's got so lengthy yeah so i don't know how long you know these periods of time were but when you're there for 46 years and 15 of them you're out of town because you're not allowed to go back i mean that's a chunk of time yeah um, yeah absolutely yeah talk about uh if anybody out there ever feels like you're not wanted imagine how athanasius fell yeah but it but he was well, a it's, mission it's, you know he was uh he, I mean, he was driven to, uh, you know, implement the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, he was driven. And I think maybe in part he was driven because he was driven out, you know. Uh, but yeah. it's, what's interesting is that, you know, we often think of him as the guy from the Council of Nicaea who, you know, took all the beatings for trying to, you know, to teach this council. Uh, but he also gives us another very interesting gift. And again, this is. Uh, I think in part due to his exile that he's known for this. Uh, of course, he he knew of of this man very early on in his priesthood, and that is um, St. Anthony of the Desert. So most of what we know about St. Anthony of the Desert comes from the life of Anthony, which is written by St. Ath Athanasius. Uh, so here's this great hermit um, from the desert who is kind of the model. Um, there were hermits before him, but he's sort of like the guy. Um, when it comes to like learning about hermits in the early church, the, the, he's the first place you really ought to go. And his biography is written by St. Athanasius. It's like a bestseller in the early church. Um, and from it, we learn the story of this guy who hears the gospel preached about the rich young man who Jesus tells to give up everything and sell all he has to, you know, give the money to the poor and he'll be perfect. And Anthony hears that and he's like, well, I don't know how this applies to everybody, but I know how it applies to me. And so he, you know, sells us his wealth. He goes to the desert. Minlin, like all hermits, um, once somebody finds out about their holiness and the reputation spreads, it's hard for him to be alone uh, because everybody wants to come sort of hear from this guy who's taken the gospel that seriously. But again, one of the people who went out to go find him and we're glad he did is St. Athanasius because, um, he has that that life of Anthony, and there's all kinds of wild stories. You know, one would think 
that St. Anthony, you know, in the desert would be like, okay, I'm finally away from the temptations of the world. I can be at peace. But out in the desert is where he's just like relentlessly attacked by spiritual warfare. <laughs> All right. And, and one, one wonders about Athanasius who's writing this and documenting this, um, especially as he's reflecting on it later in life as an exile, like, oh, you know, when, when you're in the chancery, there's all kinds of dumb stuff that could cause you temptation to sin, you know, working in the office of the bishop and every, all the hassles of being a pastor. If you're, uh, if you're removed from all that, then it's probably a lot easier to be holy. I imagine that Athanasius thought, you know, as he's in exile, like, it's probably hard to be holy there too. Uh, you know, (laughs) hard to be holy pretty much anywhere. It's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, Athanasius himself had lots of temptations, I mean, to get along with the emperor and, you know, uh, kind of uh, have a blind eye to some unorthodox formulations and things like that. I mean, yeah. In yeah, come way, on, Athanasius. It's just one letter. I mean, why are you making one such iota. a big deal out of yeah. One iota. And that's literally the Greek letter that it was, right? It was yeah. the iota. It was the letter I. Absolutely. We're chatting with Matt Swain, talking about the great St. Athanasius. More to come right after this. You'll listen to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Matt Swaim, the host of On the Journey with Matt and Ken on chnetwork.org. Also, Sunrise Morning Show on EWTN Radio, talking about the great St. Athanasius. And uh, now, Matt, if I'm not mistaken, I believe one of the uh, one of his returns back to his see was done by Julian the Apostate, wasn't it? That Julian wanted to wreak havoc on the church, so he recalled all the bishops that were in exile. And uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> and it backfires because that forces like Athanasius back to where he got kicked out. Yeah, he called back the heretic bishop, and then you know Athanasius says, "Ah, all right, there's an empty chair in my in my <laughs> office." Um, I don't know. I mean. This is an important thing to bear in mind about that period of church history is that so Athanasius is born 295, uh, 303 are the persecutions of the emperor Diocletian, which is just like one of the most brutal persecutions in all of church history. Then 313, only 10 years after that, you've got the Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. Then you're looking at 12 years later that you've got the council of nicaea which is over this controversy over who jesus is and this controversy is raging on a well at that point international level really only 13 years after christianity is made legal in the roman empire um and then you've got you know the christian emperors the julian the apostate thing you've got all of that in the midst of that you've got the donatist controversy going on as well which is the controversy that says that well um, well, Donatus and his buddies were, were of the mind that if you were under the persecutions of Diocletian or any persecutions and you renounced your faith, you can't just come back to the church, especially if you were a priest. We don't want you here anymore. Uh, you can't be forgiven for that sin. And the church ultimately comes down and says, no, you can be forgiven for that. Uh, you And this is this is an extremely important thing for the present day as well, because uh, at stake in that question was, 
if you are baptized or confirmed or receive the Eucharist from a priest who then goes on to renounce his faith, does that mean that those sacraments weren't real? And the church says, no, it doesn't matter how holy the priest is. All right. The priest can be a, a fool and a clown and an idiot and a sinner. And those things are still real. So all this is raging in the time of Athanasius. And so, you know, again, you're looking also at people like Julian the Apostate and Christianity is just finally starting to get its sea legs and boom, here comes Julian, you know, with a sledgehammer. So yeah. What a wild time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this on, uh, sunrise morning show when I was on, uh, that, you know, one of the attractive things about the Arians that wanted to make Jesus like the father, but not the same substance was because it, it was much more attractive to pagans because they were okay if Jesus was a demigod. But to say that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, uh, that was just well, too much for the pagans to swallow. And, and so the emperor, you know, he, he thought it was in his best interest. We could pad the pews, you know, if we just yeah. water down this divinity. Soften the message a little bit. Uh, how many times has that been tried through the centuries? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people act like that's something new. Right. I mean, it's kind of always been the always been the, the deal. But you know, what's interesting in, in Athanasius' um, response to him, uh, because they were accusing uh, – one of the things that the Arians would do, they would accuse the Orthodox, um, basically the real church that's carrying on the real apostolic tradition. They would say, well, you guys are – there's home – it's so funny. Like this is another thing today too. Like homoousios is, you know, homoousios is not in the Bible, right? It doesn't say you. You can't look in the Bible and find. Of course, the Bible's not a book yet, but you can't look in the pages of what we are now using, you know. And now we consider scripture, and say, well, this is, this is that word is in there, and it's not. Which is interesting because, as um, as the canon goes, Athanasius is also one of the earliest people we have who gives us a list of the books that would later become to recognize and actually like formalize in the new Testament. Like when you think about Athanasius being in this battle, I mean, and you've written about this a lot more than I've ever fooled with that. I mean, Athanasius is one of your sources. If you're looking like to see like which books belong in the new Testament. And he's oh, yeah. the part of this is because he's, he's using what is not even yet the canon of scripture to say, you know, you Arians, you're, you're getting it wrong. This is not what Paul says. This is not what the gospels say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an important point, too, because uh, the church had to move beyond the the vocabulary of Scripture in order to affirm a a belief. Right. And uh, so that was in a way the Arians were had a point, you know, but the problem is that you don't have to restrict yourself to Scripture. Well, what's interesting, and I'm going to actually read something from Athanasius here that I think uh, sort of illuminates it because it's. What's fascinating to me, um, first of all, is the is the clarity of his argument, but also the fact that like this might as well have been written by like I don't know Tim Staples or somebody or like Jimmy. I mean, this is <laughs> it's it's the kind of the kind of line of reasoning that you hear in modern al- apologetics all the time from like guys like you and all, all the whole crew, right? Um, so this is in regard to the Arians saying that you know. Athanasius is being unscriptural by arguing that Jesus is, you know, consubstantial with the Father. So he says, well, if anybody's interested in the question, let him know that even if the expressions are not in so many words in the scriptures, 
They contain the sense of the scriptures. It's been shown and must be believed as true that the word is from the father and the only offspring proper to him and natural. For where can we imagine the son came from, who is the wisdom in the word, in whom all things came to be, but from God himself? He's essentially saying, how can we say that the word is with God, you know, and through him all things are made, if this word we're talking about is not of the same essence of God? Right. And he goes on to say this, and he starts, this is where he starts quoting from the Gospels. Um, Athanasius says, I and the Father are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, is the equivalent of saying, I am from the Father and inseparable from him. And John, in saying, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known, spoke of what he had learned from the Savior. Um, and this is you know, kind of where he brings it around. He says, if then the word is not from God, I'm sorry, if, the, if then the word is from God only as creatures like you and me are from God, uh, in the sense that all things are from God, then he's not from the essence of the Father. If he's a created being just like you and me and everybody else, then it's this is a moot point. But he says, if he only is from God as a genuine son, then the son may reasonably called from be called from the essence of God. So, I mean, Athanasius really doubles down on this idea of why Jesus, why it matters that he's called in the scriptures, the only begotten son of God, right? Um, that he really truly is God's son. Like you and I are God's children. We're made in God's image, but we're not, it's not the same kind of thing. And scripture is very clear that the sonship that Jesus has is different than the kind of sonship that you and I have as well. St. Paul calls it as adopted sons and daughters of God. Um, right. You know, God sent his son as it says in Galatians four, you know, born in the fullness of time, he sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that you and I, you know, may receive a kind of adoptive sonship that is modeled off of that, but is not the exact same thing. Um, so we, we see that in the letters of John. We see that in the gospel of John. We see that in Paul's letter to the Galatians that, and that's what Athanasius is essentially saying to the Arians is that, Maybe the word consubstantial is not in the Bible, but let's look at what the Bible says. This is the principle that's applied. And the only reason, this is an important point too. The only reason that the church councils come up with words like consubstantial or transubstantiation is not because the church is inventing some new idea. It's because the terms of the argument are such that the church is trying to speak to them with like a precise clarity. And sometimes the word to like destroy that argument doesn't exist yet like all the principles are here and we've taken them all together and saying okay what's a word that kind of encapsulates this whole universe of idea and thought and that's what a word like consubstantial does um yeah. it basically says no jesus is not very much like the father jesus is made out of the same stuff of the father he's essence his isness is of the same kind of isness as is the isness of the father say that five times fast so. <laughs> yeah yeah and athanasius kind of picks up on this interesting idea that you know there's this infinite gap between god and everything he creates and so the arians really can't say the son <laughs> is like the father without putting jesus on that infinite infinitely the wrong side of the equation right? He has to be God from God, life from light, or else he's just a creature like all of us, maybe like a more exalted creature, but 
nevertheless completely different and ultimately arianism kind of you know if you look at arianism uh near when it's on its death throes there were people arguing that the son was wholly unlike the father because they saw that you know it's either he's of god and is god or he's a creature and totally unlike god in terms of his nature well and then this it's like foreshadowing of the liar lunatic lord argument then yeah what you've got right right um, but what's interesting too is that um some people might say well why don't we just still say one in being with the father isn't that basically the same kind of thing to say and the fact of the matter is it's not um i remember the first time i heard some dominican priest say god does not exist i was like what <laughs> and, and you know by that uh this priest was not denying that there is a God. He's just saying that when we say stuff like that, we're positing existence as a category and God as a kind of being within it. Yeah. Whereas right. God is not in that cat. God is, he is himself. His essence is existence, right? So <laughs> that's a different kind of thing. So um, you and I are one in being in the sense, Gary, and there's, you know, microphone and this camera and every, all these things are what we are all one in being. We are all the one thing in have that we all have in common is that we exist. We are one in that we are able to be. So to say that Jesus is one in being with the father, like you and I are one in being with the father. Uh, you know, this cup is one in being with the father It's one in being with you and me and everybody else. So that's a kind of an inadequate way to express it. Yeah, absolutely. for for Christ to be to be right, it matters that He is in that same category of existence itself, and not just one of the thing that happens to be. Yeah, well said. We're chatting with Matt Swain, talking about Saint Athanasius. More to come right after this. Now back to hands-on apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call eight 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 five two six. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with our good friend, Matt Swaim, who I term the great Matt Swaim, and uh, talking about St. Athanasius. So, uh, yeah, great stuff. Uh, talking about the, the, the before the revised uh, liturgy about uh, one being, and uh, you're, you're right. It's not like God is part of this category of existing things. He is existence, and by his will, he he holds everything in existence. So we're a category. He's not. So, uh, yeah, it's pr pretty mind-blowing stuff right before the break. <laughs> well, that's why it matters, uh, the prologue of John's gospel, um, why why John talks like that. Not because John is anticipating the Council of Nicaea, but because the, he's talking about who Jesus actually is, right? Uh, when he says, in the beginning was the word, speaking about Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God, <laughs> right? Yeah. In that he's already basically like solved the problem of the council of Nicaea, right? That the word that proceeds from the father really is of the same essence of the father. Um, and when he says through him, all things were made, you know, it's, it, it's such a powerful thing to reflect upon because, you know, as John's reflecting on this, he's trying to like hearken back to Genesis and how is it that God creates? Well, he speaks, right? He says words, um, or at least that's the best way that we have to understand what he does, <laughs> right? As recorded in the pages of Genesis, 
that's how it's recorded us because that's the closest thing we can come to wrapping our brains around um, is to think of Jesus as, as the speech of God. Right. Uh, and to hear and understand him as the organizing principle, like it is by speaking, God organizes creation, right? Jesus is the logos, the organizing principle of all creation. And now guess what? That thing has become, has been made flesh and dwells among us. Like that's crazy. Um, but again, this is, it's so crazy. In fact, that the Arians can't handle it. And, and again, that's, that's the, that's the debate of the council of Nicaea. That's what Athanasius is tasked with going back. And I'm pretty sure Athanasius was already telling his people this about Jesus, but now he's got a, he's got sort of more church oof to say, Hey, we got to, you know, this thing I've been telling you this whole time, we have a word for it. We came up with a word for it. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. It's called, um, so, but again, that word uh, tends to, tends to cause, cause problems between him and, and the temporal leaders, especially more so even than the church leaders. I mean, cause the church leaders can't really exile yet. Uh, it's the emperors and the viceroys and the governors and stuff. They're the ones who have the power to actually kick you out of town. Right. Um, so, and keep you out. So, yeah. And keep you out. <laughs> it, it, it's so, I mean, gosh, there's so much to say. Uh, I mean, is there anything you want to say about Athanasius before I jump around a little bit? No, no, go right ahead. I'll just, I'll follow your lead. Okay. Because you've, you've actually written books from which Athanasius has been like a primary source for you. So I've got to be careful about like, you know, my status as a hack, not like wading into waters that are. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to put the audience to sleep though. I mean, it's, it's all oh. deuterocanonical stuff. Uh, you know what? I'll throw in a plug, go to Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. You can find out what Athanasius says about the word and wisdom is on. Okay. Now back to you, Matt. <laughs> All right. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Now we'll look at whether where you live. All right. So um, Athanasius writes a lot about the New Testament and you talk about this, uh, you know, in Apocrypha Apocalypse, but also in why Catholic Bibles are bigger and, and some other places. Um, but Athanasius also has like one of the coolest um, writings out there on the Psalms. So this is something that the the Jewish thinkers were already doing is like categorizing the categorizing the different kinds of psalms um, and, and looking at them as psalms of lament, psalms of petition, imprecatory psalms, which are psalms about like, dear God, please put the blast on my enemies. Um, royal psalms, psalms about Jerusalem, uh, psalms of gratitude. And Athanasius uh, has a wonderful letter. Um, is it letters from, is it to Marcellinus? I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me. Um, where he's writing about the psalms. Right. Yeah. Um, one of your listeners will correct me right after the show goes off the air. So after, after I no longer have time to correct the record myself, um, <laughs> but but one of the things he says about the Psalms, um, does Athanasius, is that the rest of the Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us, which is such a powerful thought. Um, and it, it's it's the thought of a guy who's like living steeped in the Psalms um, from Athanasius. But when he's talking about this idea that the Psalms in many ways, and what he says to possibly Marcellinus, what he says to him is. Um, no, I think you're right. Essentially, I think it is. Yeah. He says, essentially, basically, no matter how you feel, go find a Psalm that says that stuff on your behalf for you. Um, and essentially what, what, what he's trying to get across is that there is no feeling that you have, no frustration that you have, even frustration with God himself that cannot be expressed to God. The problem is if you have a frustration with God and then you're like, well, I'm done with this God thing. If you're frustrated with God, why don't you tell him about it? Why don't you talk to him? 
Um, the Psalms give us permission to air our gratitude, our frustration, our fear, even our doubt that God's listening. We all, the Psalms give us permission to say all of that to God, um, which is a wild thought. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes we think that we're bold in prayer. Sometimes we think that we've got, um, you know, some stuff that, you know, uh, that's, that's pretty crazy. I wouldn't want to pray that, you know, I don't want to offend God or anything, but you and I, Gary, I'm pretty sure have never said anything as raw and gutsy in, in our personal private spontaneous prayer is my God, why have you abandoned me? <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And yet that's in the pages. That's in the pages of scripture. And it's from the mouth of David, a man after God's own heart. And it's in the canon. Um, and whatever else slice and, and Dyson was done by, you know, the Septuagint through Luther and, you know, what's deuterocanonical and what's not, whatever, however the books are numbered, that stuff's still in all the Bibles yeah. across the board. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, Athanasius is, it's a very short letter if you want to go read it uh, right. on the Psalms, but it's very, I think it's a very fruitful way to kind of think about how even in the 300s, uh, people were thinking about scripture and talking about um, the Psalms, because again, the Psalms would have been used in the liturgy for, well, really from the beginning. But I mean, Athanasius is speaking of this as someone who's leading liturgies in which the Psalms are involved. So, yeah. And, you know, that, that again, gives credit to St. Uh, Athanasius, because uh, I know for me, it's like all my guns are pointed <clears throat> towards the Old Testament canon. I've done work elsewhere, but not as much as that area. And here he's going tooth and nail against the Arians, and yet, you know, he still has this incredible appreciation of the Psalms of all things, you know? Or St. Anthony in the desert, or, you know, he, he doesn't constrict his uh, focus to just one or two items. Yeah, well, think about it, too, like as an exile, five times over. When Athanasius is reading, like, you know, my enemies surround me, <laughs> you know, they have <laughs> kicked me out of my time. I'm a stranger in my own land. Like Athanasius feels that stuff. I mean, no wonder a guy like that really finds refuge in the Psalms. Yeah. Um, I think, too, uh, Athanasius shows us, you know, something that is so easy to forget because, you know, Christianity, we think of it, or at least I thought of it, you know, as a 80s evangelical as like this thing that started in Jerusalem came through Europe and now in the American context is like, you know, found its full flowering, like American Christianity. This is the thing. And we forget that like the continent of Africa was like, I mean, that was where it was at for the church for centuries until the rise of Islam and the wiping out of a lot of those communities um, due to, you know, war and the burning of the library at Alexandria and, and all that stuff. I mean, some of the greatest, most powerful Christians in the history of the church are from Africa, North Africa, and especially Egypt, and especially within Egypt, Alexandria. I mean, the scripture scholars that came out of Alexandria are, I mean, that's a lot of what we know about what early Christianity is like is because of the stuff that was salvaged from African Christian thinkers. And I think a lot of people forget that um, it's easy to point to, you know, Rome or, um, you know, Antioch or Cappadocia and forget that, you know, down in Alexandria, 
you've got some of the greatest thinkers that the church has ever known um, living in those first four or five centuries. Yeah. Yeah. I think Michael Aquilina mentioned that he's working on a project, uh, a book, where he's going to highlight the importance of North Africa. So that, he'd be the guy to do it. Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, Matt, hey, we got a couple of minutes left, and I, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about what's going on on your docket with uh, On the Journey with Matt and Ken. Uh, what are you guys talking about? Well, we are um, working on, and this will probably start in the next couple of weeks, a brand new series on Mary and how he is a former Baptist pastor and me as, uh, you know, evangelical Wesleyan, you know, kind of came to terms with all the Mary stuff because that's a big flashpoint. Um, mm -hmm. and so that, that'll be a couple of weeks of materializing, but in the meantime, I've got a new series that we just launched with, come with, uh, the coming home network. It's called CH network presents. And it's me doing a lot of round tables with converts about uh, ideas and questions that are ex like extremely specific to the experience of converts. <laughs> uh, wow. so for instance, the second episode that we did, uh, well, the first episode we did was with Pat Flynn, who I know, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and his wife, and it was about how do you if you've had like really horrible experiences with Christians and that turned you into an atheist or an agnostic, like how do you, how do you get over that once you start to believe in God again? Um, like what if you believe in God, but you don't go back to the church because you don't want to be like one of those losers who like kicked you around in high school. Um, and then the second episode is uh, if you come from a Protestant background, you have a ton of books and then you become Catholic. What are you supposed to do with all your old Protestant books? Um, oh yeah. And then there's, you know, we just did one on the saints. I've got uh, another one coming up with Mary. I've got one. Actually, I've got one that your listeners would probably be super into with Sonia Corbett. It's going to be releasing this week uh, about what do you do if as a Protestant who grew up loving the Bible, suddenly you realize all the great apologetic stuff in the Bible. What do you do when you get stuck in that rut where you start reading the Bible only as a proof text? How do you get back to that devotional reading of the Bible and not just thinking of the Bible as a way to like win an argument? Because that's something that can happen to us as converts. It's like you get so excited about seeing all this new stuff you've never seen before, and you forget to read it. Like Athanasius was reading the Psalms to like find refuge in it. Um, so at CH Network presents, and it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. It sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. So it's a uh, uh, CH Network presents. It's at chnetwork.org, right? That's right. That's the place. <laughs> all right. Well, Matt, hey, thank you so much for coming on this show. This has been a blast. Always a blast with you, Gary, and the time goes too fast. That's absolutely true. All right, my friend, take care. Uh, you too. That's Matt, Matt Swaim, chnetwork.org. Check out all the great stuff. And, uh, yeah, it, it did fly indeed. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry Justice Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing. Back again tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.